we were young men in the military, your father and I were recruited for a project. They told us it was biological warfare, a virus. What killed those men? What killed them, I won't even write about. We have no context for what killed those men, or any appreciation of the scale at which it'll be unleashed in the future. A plague? A plague to end all plagues, Agent Mulder. A silent weapon for a quiet war. The systematic release of an indiscriminate organism for which the men who will bring it on still have no cure. They've been working on this for 50 years. While the rest of the world have been fighting cooks and commies, these men have been secretly negotiating a planned Armageddon. Negotiating with whom? I think you know. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time conspiracy theorist, Andrew Raphael. Oh, they're always out to get me. And in the latest episode of the show, we're joined by sci-fi writer and director MK Rhodes. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Thank you for having me. And you're all joining us for an altogether spooky episode of the show as we ask some big questions such as, are we alone in the universe? Have we secretly made contact with intelligent alien life? And why did nobody stop Chris Carter after six seasons? (laughs) That's right. We're watching The X-Files fight the future. But do we find the truth out there? Find out after the trailer. Hey, Steve, you okay? I got the wind knocked out on me. What's down there, Stevie? Anything? It's a human skull! There are forces on Earth. Toss it up here, dude! No way, but life is mine! Too hidden to be detected. There are conspiracies too vast. Hey, Stevie! To be uncovered. You okay? Hey, man, let's get out of here. But on June 19th, the truth is coming. Marginalized FBI agent and tinfoil hat enthusiast agent Fox Spooky Mulder is joined by skeptic despite the fact that she was abducted, probed and impregnated by aliens partner agent Dana Scully in their search for little green men. When they find themselves at the centre of a plot involving black goo, alien viruses and human hosts for alien creatures, our heroes must overcome the odds to find the truth of the matter, that they're being ripped off by Damon Lindelof. So, X-Files, Fight the Future, the first movie in the X-Files canon. I'll jump to you first, MK, because we've introduced you onto the episode because we are obviously going through the X-Files and I understand that you are a huge fan. Uh, Somewhat slightly diminished these days after (laughs) the two revival series, but yeah, um, I... Like most kids from the 90s, I am a child of the X-Files. It was an enormous influence on me in many ways. And I think Fight the Future is very good. And I think it's weirdly underrated. So I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, I of a similar opinion. I grew up in the 90s. I was very familiar with the X-Files, as with yourself. My appreciation of it is probably diminished now. I very rarely do actually go through full rewatches of the show. It's more about just picking the episodes that you like these days. I haven't really got time to go through everything. But I think um, 
I'm a quite firm, solid fan of the X-Files movie. And I think this is, when this film came out, this was the point at which I decided to start watching the X-Files. I'd always known it because it was huge when we were kids. And I can think of a few episodes like Victor Tombs, for example. That was an episode that haunted me, that character, as he did many kids. And um, and also the Fluke Monster as well, the, the one with the weird lips. and Fluke Man. Fluke Man, yeah. And he, he lurks in the sewers. I remember that haunting my dreams as well for some time. But I'd never really watched the show with any kind of religious fervor as people did at the time and it was when the film came out and I watched that and I've spoken <laughs> spoken about it with Lord of the Rings on this show before that kind of introduced me to something that I didn't quite understand but I wanted to know more and then I went back and kind of devoured the show and how about you Andy how are you approaching X-Files <laughs> Fight the Future are you a fan or is this uh, this new ground for you I'm approaching Fight the Future as a standalone film because I have very little experience with the X-Files I think I've seen the episode Tombs, and that's about it. Because <laughs> uh, oh, really? I don't know whether I was actually allowed to watch the X Files when I was younger. My dad's watched it a lot, and he's actually going through at the moment and rewatching it from the beginning. He's got all the DVD box sets. For having been retired for twenty-five years now, he's basically an old-school binger. So he will uh, devour a series over a couple of days and then move on to something else. And uh, He's currently doing that with the X-Files and he's getting to the point where it starts to go downhill. And um, over Christmas, he was talking to me a little bit about it and saying how how crap it was. I think it was around about (laughs) Series 7 or something. But yeah, apart from that, I've seen little bits and pieces, but um, it's just something I've never got around to. And uh, it's kind of sitting there on Netflix for me at the moment. But because, as with all series that kind of go downhill towards the end, the same with Game of Thrones. I start watching them and then my enthusiasm goes because I know it's going to go bad. So yeah. um, it's kind of one of those things that, again, I've just never got around to watching. And it's strange because it's something that I probably should be interested in because I do like things like this. And I I do like one of the shows that was heavily inspirational for it, which was Twin Peaks, uh, yeah. which I've seen all of that many times over, but uh, just haven't don't know why, I just never got around to watching this properly. It does tick quite a lot of boxes for yeah, you, actually, it's in a terms fun, it's of a some real of the sci-fi one. concepts. It's a funny one. I think for me, I, I it takes me a long time to really commit to something for you know long periods of time. I'm generally somebody who likes to watch sort of individual films or short things. Yeah, It may be something I'll go into uh, at some point, but it's quite good anyway, because I can approach yeah. this from a, a standpoint of just a punter going to watch this at the cinema uh, and seeing how it holds up as a, as its own movie, really. So that's quite good. I think that's a, a good like it's, it's good to have you and that way of looking at the film on the episode as well because as MK's mentioned and I have mentioned, we're both fans of the show. It's good to have that other other viewpoint at this film because many of the notes that I've taken is how does this play for somebody that isn't familiar with the X-Files? And that's something that I do want to get into as the show goes on. And so I may be leaning quite heavily on you during this episode as well. (laughs) Just to ask MK, what would you say is the perfect X-Files episode before we do move on into the film? What is is your favourite episode or favourite series of episodes? Well, my favourite, excluding the, uh, the Myth Arc episodes. Yeah. My favorite standalone episode is probably one that a lot of people um, don't seem to rate very highly, but I think it's brilliant. And um, it's a big influence on me. I know that I've always sort of liked these kind of storylines, but um, it's from season one, 
which is not the best season at all, but it's a really strong episode. And season yeah. one, um, Eve. Eve. The one with the twins, who, who it turns out are clones. Oh, yes. I remember that one. Yeah, it's uh, so tightly scripted. And um, the guest spot by, um, I think her name is Harris and Harris or something. She's also on Frasier, of all things, <laughs> um, where she plays the um, insane incarcerated um, progenitor, one of the original clones that these girls are yeah. cloned from. She's really, really frightening and unnerving. And it's a really tense, smart, spooky, sad hour of television. That's the one with the, aren't they numbered? The Eves. Yeah, There's yeah. several Eves throughout the episode. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now. And uh, the little twin girls in it are really unsettling. And they've got their little matching red coats that are very memorable. Kind of like, don't look now. Don't look now. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> and their, their modus operandi that's like genetically programmed into them where they kill people via foxglove poisoning and things. <laughs> and I, I love the way it starts out with... Um, it sets it up as being an alien abduction case. And yeah. this, is, this is something I've copied a lot in my own writing, where it sets it up as an alien abduction case, and Mulder and Scully go in to investigate, and then it gradually sort of twists into something else, and like, oh, it's not aliens at all. It's something far stranger. And yeah. I, I, love, I love when stories sort of detour like that. Yeah. I mean, I quite like season one. I think there's a... There's a lot of good work in season one. It definitely the show definitely improves as a whole as the, as it goes on for those first few seasons. But I would say also one of my favorite episodes is from season one, and that is Beyond the Sea with Brad Dourif. Oh yeah, of course, of course. And once more, no matter the role, he's just given the performance of a lifetime. <laughs> and yeah, outside of the uh, as you mentioned, the whole alien mythology, I, I think that's the episode where it became. I wasn't say I was plodding along; I was enjoying it. But that's the episode that first. Like, I felt a, a real emotional impact watching it. And then the series really kind of kicked off for me. Yeah, well, that's because not only do they have Brad Dourif in there, but they also finally sort of give Gillian Anderson something to really do. Yes, And yes. As, as becomes very apparent over the course of the series, David Duchovny, he's very, he's very nice to look at, and he's, you know, he's, he's a good sort of hero, but the series cannot rest on him emotionally. He doesn't, he doesn't have the weight as an actor to carry the series emotionally, and that all gets put on Gillian Anderson's shoulders, and she just carries it off like a champ. Yeah, I mean, I like David Duchovny, but he's definitely the more wooden and emotionally stunted of the yeah. two in terms of acting. Um, he's not really known for his, uh, his grand emotional roles. He's a, he's a good actor. Gillian Anderson is a great actor. Definitely. Definitely. And speaking about the reboot, actually, I was, I was speaking to Andy about it earlier today. And I do remember that she said that, um, was asked about her greatest regrets and said that it was uh, the, coming back for the reboot yeah. of X-Files seasons. Yeah, yeah. Poor, poor Jillian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to X-Files Fight the Future, we normally do lay out a little context into when these films were made and um, what really influenced their making. And, well, we've already spoken at length about the um, X-Files TV show and really this is the culmination of well five solid years of unbounded hype <laughs> across the the whole of TV really because the X-Files was inescapable in the 90s it, it was everywhere I remember even at one point the X-Files theme some techno transversion of it was charting number one in, in the UK for a, the longest time while it was in primary school <laughs> so 
it was it was huge, and it was decided that Chris Carter he wanted to make a movie, and I think I would say I think looking at this, he wanted to transition into making movies rather than make continue the TV series. But I haven't looked into this enough really to to lay that in solid ground. Yeah, that was the, that was the plan. He didn't want to make anything after um, season six. It was supposed to transition to making movies, but then Fox refused to let the series um, go off the air. And that's why season seven kind of sucks. Yes. Yeah. I I would say as well, in terms of this is where my X-Files credentials may be revoked, but I've never seen past mid-eight season. Well, you're not really missing out on much there. (laughs) (laughs) Season nine is pretty weak uh there's there's like no standout episodes in season nine but i think there's a lot of strong stuff in season eight i think the myth arc episodes in season eight are really strong yeah i think all the standalone stuff is not so it's best to sort of skip those except for roadrunners roadrunners is brilliant uh, that's a really frightening, disturbing episode. Oh, I may have to uh, to seek that one out. Actually, then I don't think I've seen that one. That's the one where, um, again, it's sort of it's like Eve. It starts off in one place and goes somewhere even more bizarre and crazy, where Scully goes off on her own and her car yeah. breaks down in a small town. It seems like there's a religious cult there. Oh, and, this rings a bell, actually. And then it and then it turns out that they worship they were they worship the second coming of Jesus. But what they believe to be the second coming of Jesus is a horrific slug parasite that lives in your spine. And yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know how this got on the air because it's really gory. Like it's an R-rated level of gore, <laughs> and it was on primetime television. I have one hundred percent seen that episode. Yeah, I, I completely remember it now. Yeah, what an episode. Um, also, one that I rewatched in the run-up to this show was um, Home as well, as like because everybody always talks about Home. It's one that I plan to revisit um, after I saw it chart on a couple of Halloween TV episodes that you should watch, and Home was always quite high up there for how disturbing that was. So I watched that as well prior to the episode just to get a, a feel of what the Monster of the Week episodes were. But that's also quite dark and disturbing. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> I forgot how how brutally that one opened with the burying of a uh, of of an infant child. Yeah, a deformed, still alive infant child, and uh, yes. it gets worse from there. <laughs> like I know it's like it's the golden age of television now, allegedly, but I mean <laughs> stuff like that uh, doesn't really make it onto screens anymore. Now now they'll just have boring basic cable sex on you know Game of Thrones or something. But you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I know there's, there's a lot of incest on that, but they don't do incest like the X-Files did incest. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I was I nearly found myself saying, well, we need more of that on TV. Yeah. But you know what we do? I'm, 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 I'm putting my uh, flag firmly in the ground. We need more. If you're going to have incest in your show, it needs to be really gross incest. Yeah, well, this is <laughs> the grossest imaginable. <laughs> But yeah, so moving on to the X-Files again, Fight the Future. I will say one of the things that I can see that they made a decision with as well at one point with this film was that they 
didn't want it to be populated with, and this isn't really a slight on people that are involved in the episodes, but they didn't want it to be just populated by people who are no names that are just there to blend into the series because they don't have the time to really establish them as characters beyond the actors. So a lot of the time you find with the X-Files that there are a lot of people that have gone on to have careers, but at that time they were just like character actors that you didn't really recognize from anywhere else. Whereas this one, I mean, it has like a Glenn Headley as a bartender for one scene. I feel like they've decided, let's have a bit of fun with the casting here. So they've started to cast names and Martin Landau as well in a in a role that um, <laughs> I think is actually rather great. Fresh off his, his Oscar win for Ed Wood. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, so it seems like they're having more fun with that. But I would say as well, they've, definitely gone down the right road as to the director that they brought on board because they did have a whole host of directors that they could have lent on uh, from the series i mean like we do have the likes of david nutter as well who was i imagine at one point a contender but rob bowman i think he's gone on to have and i mean i say this in air quotes the most successful cinematic career i know that he made <laughs> reign of fire as well <laughs> it's a lot of people rate that highly i don't know I don't remember it since it came out, but it has a cult following. I wouldn't say I'm I'm part of the cult following, but I think they tripped themselves up with that film by having a poster that was far more enjoyable than the film itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh... And it's not often that you can say that about a film. Uh, but on, on the poster, it has like a, a picture of uh, the London cityscape. It's on fire. The Thames is on fire. And above it, you have dragons and helicopters caught in battle. And in the actual film, none of that actually happens. It's all like based 20 years after that point. And everybody's just all a bit doom and gloom living out in the Grey Moors and <laughs> some forgotten part of England. Yeah, I remember the way it looks. That's all I remember about it. It has a, a very striking look, although I don't know if I would consider it very striking today. I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 12? Yeah. I, I have not seen his other cinematic opus, Electra. Oh, did he do Electra? Oh, dear. That's the one I was going to go oh, on no. to, actually. Like, when I say most successful cinematic career, it does kind of culminate with one of the worst films of all time, which is, as mentioned, Electra. Oh, that's a terrible film. Yeah, <laughs> Jason Isaacs, I remember, is in that film as well for a very short time. And Terrence Stamp looking very embarrassed. I've never seen it. I've seen the, um, I've seen the trailer for it because I remember when it came out, it, the trailer was everywhere. You you couldn't get away from it. But the reception to that film, I mean, they made essentially a spin-off character from a, a failed superhero film anyway. Daredevil wasn't up to much, and they decided, let's let's do a spin-off. And then Elektra came along, and nobody saw that either. I don't know, what, know why that's surprising. The initial Daredevil film, I think she tracked as being the most popular character or something like that. And they obviously thought, oh, we need to do something female-led at this point because yeah. around that time they were doing like was it Catwoman wasn't far behind I don't think either so maybe it was no. part of that whole um... and did we have films like Charlie's Angels out at yeah. the time as well like trying to cash in on I think, uh, yeah, Mick, I Mick, think G's. So. <laughs> Mick G's <laughs> magnum opus yeah maybe I don't know it was a very strange time in cinema I think that early to mid 2000s period for superhero films I think we were kind of still a little bit lost here and you know here and there I'm not saying that the times were better back then. No. And and I hate to get into the topic <laughs> of superheroes again, but I'm not saying times were better back then for the superhero genre. But you had more swings, like real real like people taking more 
out the swings and misses. Like, if a film was bad, you'd end up with, like, Catwoman, which you could just sit there and laugh. I, I feel like films of that particular genre are now just very homogenous. It's all just a soup nothing changes it's all just the same film over and over again yeah there's definitely more variety back then even though there was a yeah. probably a a bigger gulf in quality but you just tend to get ones now that are just fine or they're good yeah but they're not usually very good or excellent they're usually just fine rather than being yeah. a train wreck or anything like that so uh yeah, I mean, we, we've talked many a time on this show about being very bored with all that. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say before, like, when, with the X-Files movie, I mean, if the X-Files was around now, I don't think this kind of thing would happen because, as MK mentioned, we are supposedly in the golden age of television. And in a way, the kind of visuals and the scope of, of the X-Files movie is really what you get now with big budget television shows, you know, because the kind of distinction between movies and televisions blurred a lot. Yeah, the in lines the last are blurred 10, now. 15 years. This is kind of almost like a, a relic of the past doing a, a big budget movie version of a TV show because this kind of thing, you know, you get every week on on some of the bigger shows. So yeah, it's it's yeah. weird just what it is weird watching this film because I was really it, it kind of works for the most part. As a, as a standalone experience, but there are a couple of things where I'm just like, I have no idea who that is or what, yeah. what they're talking about. So, yeah, but I, on, on the whole, it, it kind of stands up. But yeah, it is strange to watch this film now because I always view these kind of films like, oh, they're not that long ago. But then when you actually watch them, it's like, yeah, they are from another era. It, de yeah. it definitely works better as a standalone than when you actually try and fit it into the series. <laughs> Uh, it, yes. it, it comes between seasons five and six, and they made it before season five. It was written and made before they filmed season five. Mm. But then who knows how Chris Carter's mind works. <laughs> the way he decides to lead into it at the end of season five <laughs> is an interesting, an interesting path. And then the way he decides to lead out of it in season six is also yes. an interesting, it's an interesting choice. <laughs> it's certainly a choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I decided to familiarize myself with the episodes on either side of the film. So I, I watched them both yesterday. And to be honest, in no way, shape or form does the like season finale for season five really lead into anything with regards to the movie. There's like a whole plot involving a clairvoyant child that may have some alien DNA that can... Like, he can read minds and knows where aliens are and that type of thing, as we find out in season six. But the only thing that really carries over into the film is the fact that the X-Files close. Yeah. That is it. And then when season six begins with episode one, they walk back the movie so quickly. In, like, I would say within the first ten minutes, they... Because we'll get into this with the, with the film anyway, but, like, it ends with Scully and Mulder escaping an alien spacecraft as it's taking off. And they have to walk that back so hard just to reestablish the status quo in like the first 10 minutes of episode one of season six. And Scully is suddenly completely on the other side of the fence. She's like, I'm, I'm based in science. I'm trying to keep you straight. I didn't see anything. And yeah. I have always felt that that's a bit of a cop out. <laughs> Watching it and then reading a little bit about it, I'm wondering whether something happened during the making of season five, because obviously they'd made the film and they were doing like post-production and reshoots during the making of season five. And I wonder at that point whether the plan to finish after five or six seasons and then go into movies got truncated at that point. And then 
the order for season six came and they were like, uh, we're not sure how to deal with this film now. Because it seems to me when, when you're watching the film, it feels like a um, the start of a season finale or something like that. Uh, and you think it's going to lead to something. And then when you read about it later, it's like, oh, it doesn't really. So I'm thinking whether something happened in season five and they were kind of stuck with this movie that given what Fox wanted to happen in the in the actual TV series, it didn't quite fit in anymore with with the uh, with their intentions. So they were having to sort of weave around it. And I'm wondering as well, like that shot, of when the spaceship goes over, it's very clearly a, a green screen shot of Mulder and Scully. And I'm wondering whether they purposely had um, Gillian Anderson face down so she doesn't see the spaceship. I wonder yeah, whether they reshot the that to, to sort of make it work a little bit more with the uh, season six opener because I actually wrote in my notes, it's like, of course she's face down for the entire <laughs> takeoff of this huge ship that you can probably hear... Like, even the fact that she didn't see it, she could probably hear it. Yeah. Yeah, it just seemed very, like, convenient to me that they would do that. And having read about, like, this initial plan to go into movies to finish off the series, and then the fact that that just gets completely uh, abandoned, it, it seems like that and the whole downward spiral of the series, it just seems obviously that Chris Carter kind of lost interest because his intention, his narrative intention had been thrown out the window for sort of financial reasons more than anything else. Yeah, they wrap it up. They wrap up the entire original myth arc in the middle of the sixth season. Yeah, And then yeah. you can tell that's as far as they planned. And then the rest of the series until season eight, when they figure something else out, is completely rudderless. Like season seven. Yeah. Season seven has some myth arc episodes scattered in, but they're just, eh. And they decide to let the, the the actors start directing episodes, and with mixed results. <laughs> oh, it sounds like Twin Peaks. <laughs> it, it's exactly like the second half of season two of Twin Peaks. Yeah, it, I mean, obviously they they brought it back in a completely different way for the for the most recent series. But yeah, when you watch Twin Peaks and you get halfway through that season and they end the uh, the main story arc, and then you. It kind of comes back a little bit towards the end, but there's about seven or eight episodes in the middle that are just guff. Yeah. And they weirdly uh, have a weird tone to them, which reading about season six seems like a similar thing that happens because I was reading about before where it says that a lot of the um, standalone episodes become more romantic or humorous, which yeah, doesn't seem very x filesy The comedy quota goes up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and X-Files and comedy don't seem like something that would really go together <laughs> it actually does it, it does it does yeah. yeah i agree well it doesn't it doesn't well the, it doesn't show through on the film anyway or or the episode that i watched <laughs> the film itself is very well to a certain degree self-serious and yeah i think that's the right thing to do but there are a few comedy-based episodes oh, what's that very famous one um the, the the one where it's like a meta take on the X-Files and it's the X-Files as told from other people's point of view. Jose Chung's from Outer Space. I was about to say, yeah, it's got a very eccentric name. That's the one. That's one of the best comedy episodes as well for me. I, well, that's the that's one of the best episodes full stop. <laughs> it's, it, no, no it, really, it really is like a 10 out of 10 piece of writing. It's so I'm, good. I, I'm sure. Does it have... Is, is that a Twin Peaks reference in the episode as well of... Because I've always thought this, I've never really mentioned it, but is, is that a Twin Peaks reference of the the whole vignette of Mulder coming into the store to just eat a piece of pie and then 
to, to leave. No, um, ac- actually what that is and what also makes that episode brilliant is that it's actually the one sort of thing about UFO stuff that actually captures what, you know, quote unquote, actual UFO stories are, which is just bizarre shit. Just bizarre, yeah. bizarre, bizarre shit. They completely nail the the Lord Kinboat thing where all these yeah. all these people have conflicting accounts of what happened. But they, the one thing they all share is the most ridiculous element, which, which is yeah. like Lord Kinboat. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly what UFO narratives are like. Um, Mulder coming in, eating a piece of pie is straight up. Um, Men in Black isn't the movie with Will Smith. Men yeah. in Black lore dates back to the 50s and 60s and beyond. Of and, course, the, yeah. and that's the kind of thing that the Men in Black would do where they seemed to be like human, but not quite human. And they acted really weird. Yeah. They'd like go into diners and they'd like try to drink jello. They'd like order jello and try to drink jello or they didn't know how to use forks or they'd be like really fascinated by a pen. <laughs> and as, as reported, you know, allegedly reported, they seemed to be yeah. something presenting as a human that did not know how to really, you know, pass as a human. It's that Mulder ordering the pieces of pie over and over and over again is just a riff on that. Yeah, there's there's always something of a kind of like Bigfoot element to me, you know, when it comes to, in terms of like the characters that always come forward and say that they've seen Bigfoot. And <laughs> often they're quite eccentric characters that will um, <laughs> have no problem acting out or moving about with a cardboard cutout of Bigfoot or will make noises of the the beast that they've seen. And I always, when I see like videos like that, on, and this isn't all for, you know, for every everything in that that realm, but there's always an element of that with those characters that are always quite eccentric. And I think matching the eccentricities of the stories that they have as well. Yeah, um, ufology is a subculture. Bigfoot is definitely a subculture. <laughs> the thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the squatchers and things. But um, the... <laughs> The interesting thing about Bigfoot, I don't believe in Bigfoot, but the interesting thing about Bigfoot is it's the only sort of, you know, quote unquote cryptid that predates Western colonialism since it actually dates back to the Native Americans. Oh, wow. Make, yeah, make of that what you will. It adds an interesting element to it, though, really. Yeah, the term Sasquatch is a grossly mispronounced um white person transliteration of what one of the First Nations peoples in the Pacific Northwest referred to that creature in their mythology as. It's what we do best. (laughs) (laughs) I think the original pronunciation is something like Sescuts or something, but... um, I do like a good Bigfoot story, to be honest. I feel like, though, now, and this is getting off topic, but I do feel like the history channel shows that we have or you know, Nat Geo, whichever show that they're on, um, all of these like Finding Bigfoot or those type of shows, I, I think that they diminish the idea of, not to say that I believe in anything like that either, but I think it diminishes it somewhat by, I guess, commercializing the whole thing when it used to be this odd thing in this odd little subculture. And the stories had a real personality to them, whereas now it's almost like, we're getting to the point in which we are commercializing myths. Yeah, and uh, they're never going to find Bigfoot, so... No, of course not. <laughs> That's one of the reasons when I made my uh, my UFO movie, I didn't want to make an actual documentary 
because yeah. I think there's a huge um, difference between Bigfoot and UFOs. Um, first of all, UFOs are actually real, which is not to say that they're necessarily aliens. We don't know what they are. Yeah. But um, the thing is, you can't make a documentary about something that you have no access to and probably, if it's intelligently controlled, doesn't want to have a documentary made about it. Yeah. I, I actually had people get really mad at me um, online that, um, oh, you made a mockumentary. No, it's not a mockumentary. One of them is a, uh, a certain YouTube channel. And they were upset that I wasn't using my resources, such as they are, to interview witnesses and things. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not making a documentary about UFOs. That's making a documentary about people who have claimed they have seen UFOs. There's a difference. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think this is a good point. I, I did want to speak about the film The Gulf of Silence as well during the episode. And so I think now's a great point to actually bring it up as well. Yeah, so I watched it last month, the beginning of December, and um, to be honest, it floored me. I, I don't want to give too much away in regards to what actually happens and how the story unfolds, but I felt that there was a great deal of authenticity in regards to the way in which the story is presented. And afterwards, I actually, I had to take a time out. I was sitting down speaking to my wife about it, and I was like, it just left me feeling with this real sense of not quite lost but like dread existential dread and this emptiness as well inside and i was like i think you really hit on something with that in terms of our place in the universe as well and also on, on an emotional level so I, I i don't really want to as i say i don't want to get into why it landed with me and what particular points were because i think this is something for everybody to discover and watch on their own but i i genuinely think that you've made a, and I don't mean to really contextualize it like this, but to say that it was made on lockdown as well, it just kind of adds to the mind-bogglingness of it, how you managed to get this together. I mean, I wanted to ask you about that. What what were the challenges of making a feature film during lockdown, during, in the middle of a pandemic, essentially? Well, everything. And, um, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't just the pandemic here. Um, we also had the George Floyd riots, which happened during yes. filming. Mm. And um, my actress lived downtown at the time, and it was really bad down there. I, I'm up in the yeah. I'm up in the hills where everything was pretty quiet. But um, she she's like a lot of artists. She's very sensitive, and um, it terrified her to the point that she left Los Angeles the day after we finished shooting. <laughs> so, oh really? Yeah. Although now she's back. It was an arduous, difficult time. But I have a pretty strong command of special effects and filmmaking craft. So I was able to do everything sort of mostly from my apartment, aside from filming her, which was done, some of it on a soundstage and some of it in her apartment. Yeah. Anything with black void background is a soundstage. Anything with um, the sort of metal looking teal shots that come later on were done in her apartment. And also on the roof of her apartment, because she was... I did not manage to get it in the film. I wanted to, but she lived right across the street from the building, the Eastman building, that you see in Predator 2. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where, where he holds the little thing aloft and gets struck by lightning. Yeah. I did try and put that in there, but in the end, I couldn't make it fit. Oh, that would have been a nice little Easter egg. Yeah, it, it was a shame. But uh, it, was, it was surreal being up there, like literally right across the street from that building. So uh, we, I shot it, the stuff with her in about two weeks. 
And then everything else, all the visual effects and everything were done in my apartment or out um, in Griffith Park at night. Well, I mean, I will say is I think she's a phenomenal actress as well. I actually did some look as soon as I finished watching it, I wanted, I thought, why haven't I seen uh, more of her as well? And I, I did some Googling and found out that she'd, uh, like she was a rapper as well. Uh, well, she's a comedian. Um, yes. And I know that she, she had a, sh- a, sh- a short show as well in which it was about, she was a housewife that also was a rapper on the side. And she also did something with Rachel Dratch, I believe, um, or maybe some other SNL. I get them confused, all those SNL women. But um, I, I, did, I was not familiar with her career, her background before then. She just submitted an audition and was like, hmm, okay, there we go. <laughs> well, as I say, her background seems to be in uh, based in comedy, but I, I think given the the seriousness of the movie and the emotional journey that she's on throughout the film as well, I think she nailed it. But I also think that the the key for that film is in in the writing as well. Uh, the writing is great, and I love the authenticity in terms of the way in which the story is presented. I know that at one point we have a whole chapter that's um, narrated with an audio book. Yeah, and that's me. How- <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 I had never made the connection. Has there been any pushback from the fan base just in terms of the authenticity about that? Well, I'm glad you used that word, fan base, since that's really what ufology is. It's a, uh, as I sort of say in the audiobook version, it, portion of the film, it's um, ufology is a subculture, it's not a science. And yeah, there's definitely been pushback. A lot of people are angry about the movie. A lot of people are angry that i make fun of bob lazar a lot of get over it deal with it <laughs> it's quite shocking to me to be honest that this because i i genuinely felt that it was a, a valid interpretation and a valid take on that world uh, there, there was originally more to bob lazar in the film um i was going to just really lay into him but <laughs> at the same time i had an, i had a certain runtime that i thought yeah. i should meet and um Interestingly enough, um, the one I devote more time to, um, Richard Doty, who yeah. is pure evil, he was actually involved with X-Files. Oh, was he? See, I'm not particularly um, knowledgeable of that character. I know that you do take him on in, in the film, but not to get f- further off topic, uh, but how, how, in what way is he, is he evil, would you say? Well, aside from the fact that he's obviously a sociopath since his entire career is lying and making shit up, and spreading it around as truth is uh, he got his started doing that. Um, there was a UFO researcher named Paul Benowitz who lived sort of across the street from a military base. And he started receiving um, on his radio transmitter, he started receiving transmissions from the base that he should not have been receiving. And he believed that these were aliens. And so Richard Doty, who was basically a, an Air Force agent was assigned to Paul Benowitz to figure out what he knew and figure out what information he had been intercepting. And when he found out that Paul Benowitz believed that this was aliens, he said, oh, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll just start feeding him a lot of, you know, quote unquote, inside information about aliens to, you know, lead him off. And um, what he actually ended up doing was driving this man insane. And to the point where he ended up in a mental institution. Yeah. And um, there's a documentary about Richard Doty that came out a few years ago called Mirage Men. And when he's talking about all this, you know, he's, 
aside from the fact that just his his face is really disturbing, there's something he he just has soulless eyes like a great white shark. Um, he, he yeah. you know, he, he feels no remorse. Like a he, doll's eyes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he feels no remorse. You know, he, he, it's funny to him. Oh right, so he's just taken this person for a ride, essentially, and driven them insane. That's that's awful. Yeah, and it, well, and he's done that to lots of other people, not necessarily directly, but by proxy. Because yeah. after he got a taste of that, he's like, "Oh, this is fun," and he basically became um, the Air Force's key point person for distributing fake. Crap, like the you may yeah. you may have heard of Majestic Twelve, the MJ Twelve documents, very infamous. Yeah, those are his. He wrote those, probably oh, in, right. probably in collaboration with other people, but he wrote those. And then he tried doing it again, even though he's you know retired now, allegedly. He tried doing it again with something called Project Serpo, which didn't catch on because it's just not. It was a disappointing sequel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I have a begrudging respect for him because. Um, He's a science fiction writer, basically. And his science fiction has inspired The X-Files is based on it, to a point. Yeah. He was directly involved with some of the early seasons of The X-Files. He came on as a consultant and actually wrote the episode The Blessing Way, which may be why The Blessing Way sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but um, whole subcultures have sprung up around the crap he's written. I mean, that's, that's power. Yeah, so he's almost like got this protective layer around him for anybody that dared to even criticize well, um, him. It's just a strange thing to think about that. Um, he, in terms of you know, like impact, he's probably the most influential science fiction writer of the 20th century, and nobody really knows who he is. A bit like, um, oh, what's his name? I nearly mentioned <laughs> Scientology. We could have been yeah. had somebody, L. Ron Hubbard, really on our case, L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. Uh, which, he is compared to L. Ron Hubbard in the film, isn't he? Yeah, I, I yeah. make that comparison because they 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 both wrote. Although I think um, Richard Doty is a more imaginative and a better writer than L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. MJ Twelve. If you look at it for five seconds, you think, "Oh my God, this looks legit." Whereas you know, uh, you read anything about Lord Zenu or whatever, you know, this is oh, obvious. <laughs> That's actually something that I didn't know that he was brought on board. See, I will say that my knowledge beyond the X Files of the like kind of like UFO conspiracy theory and the the following that it has, I don't really know where the origins are of these type of stories. So I, I will say as well, watching the Gulf of Silence from my standpoint as well, being a newcomer to this universe, I think that it's a um, it's a great introduction as well for someone like me and it made me want to know more it was excellent i really enjoyed it well thank you um there there is a lot of genuine stuff in the film it's um not all fiction i think that's part of the authenticity that in terms of what what sold it to me is that from my point of view there was things that i recognized as as you say not not all of it's science fiction not all of it's made up it made me start to question which which parts of the story are are based in facts and which ones are your own embellishments as well. Which, yeah, again, it just made me want to know more of that world. The real reason I did it in that way was because, um, again, because of the exiles. There's only two real ways that um, you know alien or alien conspiracy or UFO narratives have been dealt with in popular media. There's the X Files, where it's you know conspiracy terror. You know the aliens are evil. Perhaps not necessarily evil, but they're hostile to us. Or there is the 
Close Encounters, Steven Spielberg thing, which is, oh, you know, they're benevolent, you know, they inspire awe. Wondrous. Yeah. And I think if you, like, look at the facts and then you go to, you know, you take the leap and say, okay, well, if there is something to this, if this is real, what do the facts tell you? And the facts, unfortunately, tell you that if they are real, they don't don't care. Either way, yeah, <laughs> they don't care either way. In a, in a way, it's it's like a it's that, that kind of like belief in God and belief in a higher power. Well, if if there is one, exactly, yeah, exactly, doesn't give a shit, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's again something the X Files touches on to Mulder's quest for aliens is you know his his version of Scully's belief in God. Yeah, and I think that's you know it's an easy thing for this show to make, but it's true. Um, all the people who are really invested in ufology and UFOs, you know, that's their alternative to, that's their, you know, finding God. But the thing is, um, if aliens are real, if, you know, UFOs are their technology or whatever, you know, you're still back to square one because if anything, they're even more distant than God. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> They've yeah. they've been they, if they if you know the historical records are true and everything they've certainly been here since you know the late eighteen hundreds. There's been multiple opportunities for them to intervene on our behalf for our well being. You know they could have stopped the Holocaust. They could have stopped the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They could have stopped the the flu epidemic. They could have stopped you know they could have stopped COVID. Um, yep. But you know they haven't done anything on our behalf i mean i've always said in a way it's it's almost scarier that the idea of there being intelligent life out there and it just doesn't give a shit about us because i personally find the idea of aliens far more believable than the idea of there being a god i understand why people buy into ufology even though it's not personally something that i i don't say 100 percent. i do believe that there is intelligent life out there don't know if we've made contact or anything like that and so, in, in, my, in my opinion, I find that idea as well of, of, of there being aliens and they don't give a shit about us far more terrifying than the idea that there's a God and he doesn't give a shit about us. I've had a lot of people say that to me, that they find that idea really frightening. And I don't know. I, th- I, th- I find it reassuring. If they don't care about us, but they're like visiting Earth and they're not like hurting yeah. us, I, th- I don't know. I think that's reassuring. I think that I think that speaks better for them than it does for us necessarily. So, what do we think? They're like observing us, just seeing where we go. Uh, yeah, if the uh, accounts of um, their incursions and in nuclear weapons bases on both in both the U.S. and the Soviet Union are to be taken as true, then you know, obviously, the implication of that is you know, don't fuck things up, you stupid little monkeys. Everyone seems to jump to the assumption that if they're visiting Earth, it's because of us. And yeah. I wrote that into the film. You know, there, there's over 9 million species on this planet. What makes you think that only one of them, which is fairly recently on the scene, is the only thing of interest? If aliens have the technology to cross space or time or dimensions, maybe even in with their technology, I'm pretty sure they'd be able to communicate with dolphins or whales. Uh, there's other animals on this planet that have language that we don't comprehend. I think that's in a way, because um, we've been briefly talking about it, religion is kind of, for a lot of people, made humans seem more important than they actually are within the makeup of the world. Because you have, you know, God made man in his own image and all that kind of gumph. 
I think it kind of unbalances where we are in the world and, and our and our place. Uh, and it does make people feel like they're more important than they actually are. So I think that's where that's kind of come from in a way, I think. Because, yeah, in a way, like the stuff in the film, when it was um, talking about going into the ocean, even though it leans a bit more into the sort of close encounters area, it did start me get me thinking about the abyss in a way. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. That's that's actually um, not necessarily me making stuff. I'm not James Cameron making stuff up either. Um, mm. That's It's always been so weird to me, and that's why I put such a heavy emphasis on it. Um, the, a bulk of the really dramatic UFO sightings are underwater, as mm. recorded. Um, and in fact, there was one just this year, or no, it was last year, but it only got reported this year. One of them went by a Navy submarine and everyone was really panicked and upset. And apparently the reason that all the UFO disclosure, I hate using that word, but all the UFO disclosure stuff from the last few years has yeah. come from the Navy should tell you something. Mm, yeah. It's not the Air Force. I guess as well as shown in the film, I know we had that release of the, the videos as well of the fast moving objects above water. And that, again, it plays into the idea of them being over another body of water, essentially. Like, we seem to be able to, to capture them in these environments more often. Yeah, it's uh, why, based on, you know, the observations of them, they don't seem to fly. They're not flying. They just seem sort of to disregard gravity altogether. They can go in the air, they can go in the water, no problem. So, if they were here, if they are here, the ocean, it's the easiest place to hide. And that's where they've been detected hiding for, you know, since the 40s. None of this is new. It's only just in the last few years that, you know, like the New York Times has started reporting about it. No, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's plenty to mine as well. And I, I will say, moving back to the X-Files as well in regards to that, I, I also think um, from what you've just mentioned as well about where the easiest place to hide is, I like that this takes it back as well to... An idea we once more get to the point of there being spaceships buried underneath ice and deep glaciers as well, which again is playing into that idea that you've mentioned of of aliens living in um, like underwater and hiding there as well. But playing into this, did either of you get the feeling, just speaking about X Files for a moment, that with its um, basis in pre man and everything that follows and everything with the black goo and the aliens uh, incubate inside human beings. Did anybody get a feeling of Prometheus? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not just that, but I mean, when the ship comes out at the end and they're running away from it and everything and climbing yeah. up out of the... Uh, it's uh, and I'm 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 pretty sure Damon Lindelof has gone on the record saying that you know Chris Carter is the reason I do everything I do and it's like well we can tell from your storytelling style yeah. so that's who we blame makes me laugh on those like three hour long documentaries for Prometheus or Ridley Scott is going no original 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 and it's like mm, no yeah <laughs> there's nothing yeah. nothing original in what you're doing looks nice well I think I think the thing is that. Ridley Scott hasn't seen X Files. No, the movie. exactly. Or Damon Lindelof has. <laughs> Damon Lindelof definitely has. <laughs> so to him, he's like, "This is this is a great yarn. I've never seen anything like this before." Yeah, that that is it. Is it the purity virus that it's called? Yeah, that's what it's yeah. called in the, in the series. when it's when it's going into through the under the skin of that boy. And I was like, "Yep, I've seen this before." But obviously, this came first. But <laughs> even the um. Even the sort of background mythology of it that, yeah. you know, 
life on Earth was created by these aliens. Well, not necessarily. Actually, I, more, it's actually more complicated than that, I guess. It's, um, and that's one of the things I actually appreciate about the mythology of the X-Files is that Chris Carter brought aboard some actual scientists to make it plausible, you know, quote-unquote plausible. But Of course, yeah. And that's, that's another thing I liked about, say, Alien Covenant is um, it made certain things plausible that previously were not plausible. And that made a lot of people upset, I guess. But one of the things that um, science fiction films dealing with aliens and, you know, or dealing with aliens and body horror never take into account is the fact that uh, they wouldn't be able to eat us, for starters. Our biochemistry would be incompatible with theirs. We couldn't mate with aliens. You know, none of this. (laughs) We'd try. I imagine that we would try. (laughs) None of this would be compatible biologically. Yeah. But in the X-Files, the aliens turn out to be the original inhabitants of this planet that in this very Lovecraftian sense evolved here hundreds of millions of years ago before the dinosaurs left Earth to go invade space and conquer the cosmos. And now they're coming back to, you know, reclaim their original world. And I think that's cool. I think that's a cool idea. And the fact that we, life on Earth has been sort of seeded here in the interim as a way for them to reconstitute themselves later. So the, the entire purpose of humanity is that we are literally empty vessels to be used as, you know, propagation fuel for when these aliens it, just yeah. rebirth themselves. I think that's, that's, that's a really cool cosmic hor- horrifying. <laughs> and I, I like the way it incorporates some, an actual concept like relical DNA, junk DNA. Um, most of our DNA and our genetic code is inactive because it's just waste DNA from hundreds of millions of years of evolution. But, you know, what if that actually did have a purpose? What if that was actually the genetic code for, um, you know, our alien progenitors? And when that code is activated, it just turns our body into meat that, you know, gestates another alien. I think that's cool. That's a cool idea. Yeah, like (laughs) our bodies are the bad guys as well. We're carrying it with us. It's Yeah, it's it's icky. It's really icky feeling. And I I really like it because um, something that you just mentioned then, the Lovecraftian feel of it. I, I like stories like this that imply that there's an ancient thing at play here. It's something that dates back before our time and even before the time before that. And it brings a sense of, of weight to the series as well, th- having it play back that far. Yeah, I, I think if you're doing a science fiction horror and you don't open, you know, 45,000 years or millions of years ago <laughs> in the past, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I do like that opening as well because I know that X-Files has a few out there openings as well and we certainly made us like they made their name on it. I I will say just as an aside, I love how cruel the X-Files openings can be as well. That's also mm. something that's I'm, I'm particularly a fan of. But I I like that this one that that, that the film it opens with a bang. They're opening like with a statement of this isn't just your normal X-Files episode. We're going straight back to like the dawn of man times. I didn't necessarily realize this until last night when I rewatched the film, but um, my next film that I'm working on now also uh, features <laughs> Neanderthals. And um, oh, really? they're not the opening because the opening takes place four million years in the past, but it's the same time frame 35,000 years ago when I get to them. 
but um, I, I love that opening, even though there were never any Neanderthals in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> of, of course not. But I'm, I'm willing to, like, I'm willing to, to forgive it that. Yeah. I think, I think the title cards in the film really made me laugh because almost every single one said, we're in Texas. Now we're back to Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's just like, it's one of those things that felt like, hmm, I think the studio put these in to uh, make really <laughs> dim people uh, understand what was going on. Because some of them are just like, we know where we are. Well, if an ancient evil horror does come from anywhere, it would not surprise me if it comes from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine we have some horrible cosmic, like Stephen King type horror living under that entire state. Yeah, oh. it's a, it's a, it's a place of evil for sure. <laughs> Sorry to anyone from Texas who may be listening. Oh, they understand. But yeah, and and again, it really does open with a bang. This film, I, for me, the strongest points of this film. I love everything in between where we do get into the conspiracy and and what that is regarding. But I like the film when it's at its most cinematic as well, which are, seem to be in the first 20 minutes. I love everything to do with that bomb. That's a really strong way to open the film. And once more, it seems to be playing into the idea that for a short time, we're dealing with a story that is unconnected to any kind of alien mythology. We're just simply immediately in this little vignette dealing with the idea that there is a bomb in a building and we have to get out of here. Yeah. One of the things that sort of both dates the X-Files and also um, makes it really interesting. Basically, the way the mythology of the show evolved was Chris Carter would like look at the news and say, what's scaring people now? How do I work that in there? <laughs> so like in the 90s, there was the terror, the paranoia about killer bees you know, the quote-unquote Africanized yeah. honeybees to make them extra scary, you know, because of Africa. And um, of so, so those get in there. There was the Oklahoma City bombing by the white yes. supremacist Timothy McVeigh. There's a lot of stuff in this film and in the mythology of X-Files that is Chris Carter sort of riffing on right-wing conspiracy literature. So not only does the that Oklahoma City bombing get in there, but Kurtzweil's books are inspired by stuff like Behold a Pale Horse and other things, which were these UFO conspiracies novels written by, again, a white supremacist psychopath. I would say, honestly, this is something that I actually picked up on uh, watching a few of the episodes back um, very recently, was I never really picked up on how right-wing validating a lot of the... Um, the stories are at play um, within the X-Files series. And w one of the things straight away I mentioned, uh, I noticed in this film is also, yes, it's the Oklahoma bombing. It reminded me once more of Arlington Road as well, which is another film that I actually think is, is a rather good thriller, but also seems to be validating the idea that, you know, there was a grander conspiracy at play and it wasn't just this, it couldn't have possibly been just a right-wing extremist. There has to be some kind of grander conspiracy at play. And it did make me think that X-Files is a double-edged sword in that way in terms of whom it seems to be playing into the hands of. And um, one of our good friends on Twitter actually mentioned this when I was uh, I tweeted about the reboot series very recently, just earlier today, in fact. And they replied with, and yes, and we cannot forget that this is a series that made an Alex Jones character the good guy. Yeah. And <laughs> Uh, I think that, yeah, that's probably the, the should have stepped back from that. I think the X-Files TV show was a, a bit more subtle in regards to its approach to that. But with the reboot, it hits it kind of like head on and it makes me feel 
a little bit greasy. Yeah, that, that's one of the interesting things about the X-Files um, is that odd tension between all these um, right-wing conspiracy narratives it's drawing from and then the fact that all the writers are basically left-wing. Um, Chris, yeah. Carter, Chris Carter is a Democrat. Um, even though that doesn't necessarily mean left wing in America, <laughs> um, but um, of course. I think it's more just because um, trying to engage with this stuff and contextualize it in a way that is um, sensible is really, really difficult to do. You're basically trying to go through a minefield and not step on any landmines. Um, you're probably going to step on one of them. Um, that, that's, what, yeah. that's what I tried to do with um, Gulf of Silence, too. And the way I sort of dealt with that was I just sort of explicitly called it out for what it was, you know, yes. paranoid right-wing conspiracy stuff. But when you're contextualizing that in sort of a big, grand, overarching mythology, um, I, I don't necessarily think there's any real way to win it. I mean, like, even John Carpenter with They Live, which I love, I love that film. It's a great film. Yeah, it has a rabid um, anti-Semitic fan base who, despite yes. John Carpenter going on Twitter to say that there's nothing anti-Semitic about it and saying so is slander and everything like that, they're like, no, you're wrong. Obviously, it's about the evil Jews that control the world. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, even to speak about The Matrix, we've seen it. Even more recently, with the whole idea of red pill being red pilled, Something that came from The Matrix itself, which is um, a film made by two trans women who actually made a film about the trans experience and about essentially something that they were experiencing at that time. And now it's been co-opted to be this right-wing signifier, essentially. They refer to themselves as being red-pilled and often present this meme as being like, do you pick the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> and even when they're confronted with that now... It, when the directors actually come forward and they say, you know, this film was a, specifically about being trans, it's essentially their own fan base shouting back at them, no, it isn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's that's quite shocking to me. I haven't seen this yet, but there's um, a documentary by Errol Morris about Steve Bannon, who, um, you know, the evil, Ugh. yeah, the ghoulish, yeah. <laughs> ghoulish... Um, Trump advisor. That's old man. Yeah. And um, he has this um, Steve Bannon, despite being one of those, you know, hard right conservatives who hates Hollywood and everything, really wants to be part of Hollywood and really loves movies and things. And he does this, he apparently does this um, thing where he shows Steve Bannon like all these left wing movies to get Steve Bannon's take on them. And Steve Bannon, it's like he watches them and he just comes comes up with these completely disingenuous um, framings of them yeah. in a right-wing context that he believes wholeheartedly. <laughs> so there's just no winning. There's no winning with this stuff. No. You understand the mindset behind why uh, Breitbart or Breitbart, whatever it's pronounced, I don't care if I'm saying it wrong, but um, you start to understand where that fan base and culture came from because it's not about whether or not it's the right interpretation it's just as long as it confirms to this particular way of thinking, then they're, they're going to be happy with that. Um, but, but yeah, sorry, I, I brought us down down a tangent there. My apologies. Oh no, you're gonna you're gonna lose the your right wing listener fan base now. <laughs> I think we lost that fan base quite some time ago. In fact, yeah. but Andy, I did want to ask as well, just mm -hmm. in regards to the X Files. Just to reiterate, you're not a particular fan of this show. It's not something that you've watched and you're only familiar with maybe one or two episodes. Yeah, yeah. So 
what was your experience with this film? What what did you struggle with, if anything, with regards to Fight the Future? To be honest, I think that there are a couple of things. One was the way that they introduced Mulder and Scully, because I'm aware of who they are. I mean, you know, I've seen bits and pieces here and there, and it did surprise me. I have watched this film before, but long, long, long time ago, but um, how it doesn't really build up their entrance at all. That was kind of strange, considering it was meant to be a film that was yeah. being made for non-fans to watch also, that they just, especially Scully's intro, she just appears out of nowhere, and we've had about 10, 15 minutes without them, and they just appear. So there's nothing in cinematic language that's speaking to the audience to say that these are the main characters now. Yeah, it very much takes for granted that the audience is going to know who these guys are. I mean, it. Pro- I mean, at the time, because the X Files was so big, they obviously felt that they didn't need to do that. But it is a kind of strange. It is a strange entrance for them in the film. And the only other yeah. thing is the um, introduction. What are they called? Those three characters. Is it the lone, oh, the lone gunman? The lone gunman. That's it. That that was the point of the film where, like, I have no idea. This is for TV watches i have no idea who these guys are at all that's honestly the point in which i i thought you were going to mention first off as well was the introduction of the lone gunman because you don't they don't really get any any establishing for anybody that isn't familiar with the show and i also think walter skinner as well is uh, marginalized to such a point that in regards to the the film you really you really need to know who he is to understand anything about his character in in this film most of the time, he's just giving looks across a boardroom. Yeah, yeah. And th- that's really the most that his character gets to do in this film, other than that scene with the lone gunman as well. But yeah, that's the point I thought you were going to mention first. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing is as well is, I'm not sure as a standalone experience what you would get out of it at the cinema as such in terms of like the end idea, because I do feel like the ending is a little bit abrupt for what it is, like considering how much they how much time they spend building up to it. Um, yeah. I did write in my notes the whole um, contaminating of the base evacuation thing at the end is very abrupt and I really don't know what's going on and why the ship flies off. And I, it just leaves me with a lot of questions more than anything else. Well, it's, be, it's because he introduced the vaccine into the Yeah, system. I kind of got that, but it, it, it felt very like... It felt like there was a disconnect between the... Uh, the smoking man and his goons and what Mulder was doing down in the depths. Like, there's no kind of crossover at all. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's reason for that because obviously they've got to continue the the show and stuff. But I don't know whether, as a standalone film, the ending was completely satisfying. It almost felt like, in a way, at some point, this was part one of a movie trilogy. And then at some point, some yeah, point down the feels line, like that for me. when they got the commission for season six, and all of a sudden these movies weren't going to happen anymore, that they had to. I, I there's, there seems to be a couple of things here and there that that are kind of obvious reshoot things where they've kind of go, oh right, we've got to land back into the series now. So yeah, it kind of, I think it kind of harms it a little bit because you you're kind of in a way left wondering what the yeah. point of it was. Like in terms of like it being a movie, that's one thing that I mean. I want to reiterate. I love this film. I really, really enjoy it. And I think it gets a lot right about what I 
love about the X-Files. And I think that it works as a legitimate film. But obviously, I'm always bringing to it the baggage of having seen you know, the series surrounding it. But one thing that does irk me and one criticism that I do have for the film is that the character arcs are really about these characters in relation to the X-Files and in relation to the continuing investigation of the extraterrestrial. And where the film essentially leaves us is the characters in the same place than they've that they've always been. Yeah. Which yeah. is with the X-Files opening and them continuing the search. And I think that's simply because they were moving into another TV series. I think the status quo needed to be disrupted by the end. And that would have justified everything. I think that's the only thing that it's lacking. I, I feel like the characters of all got arcs, they all car- and the actors really sell the film. The story's good. The mythology's great. But at the end of the film, they needed to be in different places than the series has left them for me. Obviously, that was never meant to be. I think if it had been continued to be a film series, that's when we would have really taken the next step in the uh, evolution of the X-Files. Yeah, I, I share that criticism. Yeah, I think you'd, you'd have to go back and see if there are any draft scripts lying around, whether the ending got changed, because that whole bit at the end when they're in Washington feels, again, like a, a reshoot where they, this is like a way of getting them reset into TV show mode because it, it in a way, and also because of its positioning now in, in, the, in the series canon, it just kind of feels like a, um, a sideshow runaround and now we're back to the main yeah. series, even though it was intended to be this grand opening up of the uh, the story into this kind of big finale, yeah. like the opening to a grand finale that never really happened. And it's kind of funny now that like this whole sort of mythology thing hasn't really been wrapped up in the way they originally intended, I don't think. Uh, no, not even remotely. Because <laughs> it's been stretched out beyond its natural life. So, so it's kind of a shame because it kind of... It does, like, throughout the whole body of it, it's like, oh, this is going to be great. It's leading up to this thing. And no, it's kind of, we're back to normal at the end. And it's kind of a little bit unsatisfying, I think, at the end of it. And I think as a general audience member, you'd be like, it's okay. <laughs> and that seems, I mean, when you look at the reviews, that seems to be the um, yeah. the kind of general audience consensus that it was fine. It was okay. Which is a shame. Because it, it, it had potential to, yep. to lead on to something better, I think. As no, well, yeah, I, 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 th- I think so. I, I share that in terms of it being a stepping stone to something else as well. I still think it works. But then again, I'm, I'm, I always am approaching it as an X-Files fan. But um, yeah, I do think it works as a film. But I do, I do actually really like the last 20 minutes. Because again, I, I, I was mentioning, I feel like the, the first 20 minutes are very cinematic. And I feel like the last 20 minutes are very cinematic as well. Because... It turns into a, almost a silent movie. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, goes, it goes it goes the alien and predator route of becoming pure cinema. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. just no dialogue. And I love that element of yeah. it. It always felt like, oh, this is different than what the X Files normally does. This is not TV. In TV, you've got to have somebody like there's got to be a room in an office where somebody explains the plot. This is all visually told here. And yeah. um, everything with the, va- uh, the the vaccine as well infecting the system, it's all visually told. I know this cigarette smoker man does give a line or two for the people in the cheap seats that don't understand it. But uh, yeah, I do like that it just goes just very cinematic all of a sudden. And I love the presentation of this um, spaceship as well, of this UFO. And, um, and the Neanderthals as well that are still in 
the like incubation pods with the alien creatures yeah. ready to burst out at any moment. I mean, there's some great work by ADI as well with this film. Um, particularly, I like the aliens, but I particularly love the the the, the fireman who's kept um, uh, like underground in Texas. Oh yeah, with his translucent skin and everything. Yeah, that that is such a great puppet. And I was watching the making of as well. And they did it in like layers of. It took quite a lot to actually make that in terms of um, the practices that they used, but it, it looks fantastic. And I'm not surprised that they moved away from showing it bursting out of the body entirely because everybody would have screamed alien ripoff. But I like that when we actually see these people that have been these incubation pods for aliens, that their entire chest and stomach abdomen cavity is just missing yeah one of the one of the weird things is this film is a pg-13 film but it doesn't feel like compromised or anything it it has a has a sense of intensity to it holy shit really yeah but um, it's a 15 over here so that seems to be more what we would expect from x-files yeah interesting yeah british uh more prude with gore (laughs) (laughs) but not about sex anything sex is fine but gore no Violence, no. You guys had Antichrist passed uncut with an 18 there, so, you know. That's <laughs> what we do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you watch the episode that follows this, the season six opener, and it's way gorier. Yes. <laughs> way, way gorier. The TV version is gorier yeah. than anything that's shown in this film, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and, and the I think the attack as well is is more brutal than the uh, TV series as well. When his, uh, yeah, it's really his colleague violent. comes along to to meet him, yeah, it's. I was actually quite shocked when I watched it back with how jarringly gory it is compared to the to, to the movie. One thing I do like about the movie too, in terms of these supporting characters that nobody coming in will recognize, though, is John Neville as the well manicured man who is always my favorite of the uh, evil old white <laughs> conspiracy guys. Yeah, because he, he's just so suave and so British and. Uh, I think he's really good in this, and it, you know that you know that he's going to die because he's getting so much to do, yeah. and he dies. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually surprised that he was actually in the main series. I thought he was just here for the film, but um, he's he doesn't he appear like from yeah. season three onwards or something? Yeah, yeah, because he's kind of a well known. So in terms of like they're having unknown people mm-hmm. in like uh, for guest roles, that's kind of a. They must have been planning that for for this because he does have a, such a a central role in this in this film that I genuinely thought that he would ju- he was just cast for this this film and that and he was he wasn't in the actual series because the way it sets him up it kind of looks like from a casual view it looked like oh this is just a film character rather than somebody who'd been established already. I've always liked him in the TV show. I think in in the, in the film they do present him as the most English person that ever lived as well. I like the establishing yeah. shots that England gets because you've got to make an impact very quickly. Oh, we're in funny. England. Uh, it's really funny that because I was when it cuts to it says Somerset, I was like <laughs> bullshit. That is not Somerset because that that house gets used so much in films and it's so obviously yeah. in LA. Because I think the the original, I think they they planned to do more overseas shooting and more locations, but the um, I think the time constraints of the the schedule that they had when you when you look at the schedule of this film, it's pretty baffling to be honest. Well, hey, it's it's better than what they do in the series, in the early seasons of the yeah. series, where they're in Vancouver and it's like the jungles of South America. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I think I think it's because we're just talking about a completely different era. 
of of TV shows. Like, like you know, they would have had about you know a week to make an episode or something. That said, though, I think the er- the original seasons of the X Files look way more cinematic and way more evocative and yeah. moody than anything on TV today. I mean, watching them back now, I know that we've had the um, we've had the new transfers essentially for the X Files TV show, the remastering of the X Files TV show, where they've opened up the frame essentially. I know it's cropped in slightly, but Honestly, watching them back now, outside of the 4x3 framing, which I never had a problem with anyway, they're still, as as mentioned, they, I think it's also a part because they shot on film as well, which again yeah, changes the game entirely difference. when it comes to these things. But I, I, I was watching it saying, these still look fantastic. There's something about, um, especially when, you, again, mentioning the, uh, the darkly uh, received uh, revival seasons, um, when you compare, oh, yeah. uh, which were shot in Vancouver, there's there's like this schism in the fandom over you know the show's move from Vancouver to Los Angeles and how it changed the visual look of the show. And yes, the post season six episodes do look a lot brighter and sleeker, but they still yeah. look good. They still look very classy. But there's something very sort of gritty and primal about those early um, Vancouver seasons. And then you watch the revival episodes, which were also shot in Vancouver. They look nothing like that. They look just like anything no. else. There's nothing cinematic about yeah. them. There's nothing. There's nothing interesting about the lighting. And I think that's. It's not. They feel cheaper. So much cheaper yeah, as well. It's. They feel like television. Whereas I think the, the, when <laughs> yeah. the X Files is at its best, you know, it looks like a film. It looks like cinema. Yeah. Especially in the new two um, K restored widescreen versions it it looks like cinema i 100 percent agree with you on that i mean i i know that there are the the episodes as well out there that don't look the best but when we're talking about x files at its best it's um it's quite untouchable for me it's, i think it's still a touchstone really in in tv and i know that we've had certain tv shows flirt with the idea of um being quite as arresting as this was but uh, like I speak about Lost and things like that that followed, but I don't think anything since the X Files has captured audiences quite like the X Files. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's another thing I wanted to mention when we were talking earlier about you know just how omnipresent it was. Something that um, the Zoomers, the new generation of uh, <laughs> of people who are ten years younger than us, don't understand is um you know they think oh like Marvel's really popular or whatever. Mm. Compared to how yeah. just sort of culturally omnipresent something like the Exodus, or another example, Titanic. There is oh, yeah. never, yes. there is never going to be anything like Titanic again. They just they cannot comprehend how omnipresent it was, how much it dominated pop culture, how much money it made. Like the, it's you know, of course, been dethroned by yeah. Avatar, you know, by Avengers sixteen or whatever since. <laughs> but the, nobody talks about those really anymore. Everybody talks about Titanic for years that followed that film, and there were documentaries. The Titanic itself was became this this a uh, huge phenomenon once more, and. I think that, like, since the... When did Avengers Endgame come out? Because it feels like it was either two years ago or 20 years ago, because nobody talks about it anymore. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's just product. <laughs> it's, just pro- it's all just product. Whereas Titanic yeah. was, yeah. like, a certified outtourists blockbuster, which, again, they don't make anymore except yeah. for Jim Cameron, even though I think making sequels to Avatar is a waste. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I like Avatar fine. It's fine. It doesn't need 16 sequels. Come on now. I think that's the thing I'm most interested uh, about those sequels in terms of I really want to know how they're going to do, not critically, but just financially, whether they're actually going to be of that level because we've always been proven wrong with him, but or whether they're just going to be underperforming, as the, the studios would put, because I, no one talks about the, the Avatar films. And um, it's just... Uh, odd as well i think the the weirdest thing is that that avatar land the animal kingdom oh yeah it's Disney. like it's a bit like flogging a dead horse because it's like they built this really elaborate land for a film that no one really cares about that much that you know they're getting it again with the the star wars thing there's talk of the star wars land being completely retooled to uh be more sort of overall star wars rather than just be based on the sequel trilogy uh, which they really, I don't know why, they, it seems really stupid in retrospect for them to base a whole land around a film series that hadn't even been um, completed or, you know, its legacy yeah. hadn't been cemented at that point. No, because it was always one film away from yeah. failure yeah. as well. It's always, and when it does, that that whole land, the bottom so falls out. It's it. kind of strange, yeah, and like with films like Titanic, yeah, we're still talking about it now and it still pops up in, you know, you, you always get the odd sitcom that mentions something out of uh, Titanic. I was watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine last night and there was a Titanic reference in it. So, you know, those things will, will live yeah. for as long as people are, are still watching that film and they, they pass that along. Whereas with these new ones, they, they, they don't do that. And even though I hadn't seen much of the X-Files, it's still a kind of a big part of my life because it was everywhere. And also, uh, I was going to mention this before, that... Um, that Simpsons episode that they did, um, <laughs> can't remember what season. That that in a way, when when someone says X Files, I'm not sure whether it was the same cover in the states, but there was a there was a Simpsons video cover. Was it is it called like the Dark Side yeah. of the Simpsons or something? Um, and it had oh yeah yeah it was everywhere, and I think every kid had a copy of that Simpsons compilation. It must have had about four or five episodes on it, but it had that Mulder and Scully, the Simpsons version at the front, and that's what. I always remember, and it even gets it even gets the 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 Mulder the Sex Pest thing yeah. right as well with his badge. Yeah, and he's 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 splayed out on his uh, on his picture ID. I think that's a great episode. That that could be just introduced to the X Files canon. Yeah, no, it would sit right alongside Jose Chung's from Outer Space. It does feel like it could it could fit as a part of that? Yeah. So even though I haven't seen very much of it, it still feels like it's part of like my life growing up because it was everywhere it really was yeah and yeah you just don't get that now i think everything's been more everything's more um homogenized marketable and it's a little bit more fringe in a way because you got like the mainstream's got smaller in a way i think people are more interested in other things so even though things like marvel are big they're just they aren't as big as as what things used to be i sound really old now <laughs> <laughs> I feel similarly about Avatar in terms of, uh, I mean, speaking about James Cameron as well, I, we've, I've mentioned it on the podcast before, I don't want to ever be in a position where I write off J James Cameron. Everybody wrote off James Cameron before Avatar was released, and then it went on to be one of the biggest films of all time. I, Much like EMK, I wish that he wasn't kind of like spending all of his time making Avatar, like umpteen avatar sequels i want to see james cameron get back to being james cameron yeah but i'm very interested to see how av this avatar sequel does land and if there is an audience there for it i think that there probably is because people still turn up for james cameron i'm sure that they will 
But yeah, I, I'm just wondering how much pull it will have compared to that 2009 film. I'm sure it'll break box office records again and everything. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll again. be fine. It'll be it'll it'll be good. But <laughs> I liked Alita: Battle Angel. Yeah. Oh yeah, me too. I think it would have been a. I think it would have been a lot better. I think it would have been incredible, even maybe if Jimbo had directed it himself. One hundred percent. Because I mean, I like Robert Rodriguez. He he did he did good. He did good on it. But there's there's a huge gap in, you know, just directorial power between yeah. Robert Rodriguez and James Cameron. And it does feel like Robert Rodriguez is doing a James Cameron film. And there's only one person really that can do a James Cameron film, and that's James Cameron. And that's it's ably demonstrated by um, the last Terminator movie where James Cameron again wrote the script. And again, the, you know, I liked it. It's the first bearable Terminator movie since T2. <laughs> um, I thought there's a lot of good ideas. I thought Linda Hamilton was really good, but the, the direction is what sunk it. Yeah. And he capped its potential. Like if James Cameron had been at the helm, he could have taken that and really made something um, propulsive and exciting. Yeah. And then they got the Deadpool guy and it just, the action sequences aren't very coherent <laughs> we should have had you on for the Terminator episode. We've we've recorded that. That's already yeah, in the but it'll be coming out after this one now because we've moved. We, we I was so down on that film that we uh, decided it wasn't a very good season opener. <laughs> really, really. I, I think it was more yeah down to the direct directing more than anything else because I thought it was so flat looking. Yeah. And also, I just didn't feel like it really added much to like. It just felt like uh, they just moved some of the pieces around, but it was still very much the same yeah again it suffered from trying to recreate terminator 2 again when it really should be doing something else i think we came to the conclusion that the only way forward with that series is to do something in a different genre make it more horror yeah well they shouldn't be doing anything with it at all well yeah no i think that was the other conclusion oh yeah it needs to be done (laughs) they should just stop (laughs) same thing as x-files yeah Uh, yeah unfortunately we've got to kill the things we love you know it's one, one day somebody's got to take old yellow around the back of the shed. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the things we said about that was um, just simply, I, I I was very much of the opinion, much like yourself, where I liked Terminator Dark Fate, but I didn't love it. And I was glad to finally see, a, um, a, like you say, a Terminator film that was, I would say, enjoyable because it had largely been not for so long um, since Terminator 2. But when it failed... I wasn't asked, and I was like, "Yeah, it, this is how did they not see this coming?" Even though it's it's an okay film, it was always destined to fail because it's just okay. Yeah. And the the budget is way too high, like ridiculously so. Yeah, like he, where is that money on the screen? <laughs> no, I mean after after as well when Terminator Genesis came out, and that had like a two hundred million dollar budget, and that also I don't know where that went, and that failed so spectacular. I mean, I know it made money in China, questionably. But that failed in the US quite fantastically. Why did they go and pump the same amount of money or even more into it once more? I don't understand that reasoning. It's really interesting when you compare again with these um, 90s blockbusters these or these you know, 90s mid-budget blockbusters like The X-Files Fight the Future, which looks, I think it's a really good looking film. Fight the Future is a very yeah, good looking yeah, film. And the budget for that is, I think, what, $65 million? Yeah, which, yes. 
which today, $66 million. Yeah, which today would be like, what? I don't know, like 100, 120 million maybe at most. That's still a reasonable yeah. price. You know, it looks great. Um, and then you look at something like Alien 3, which only costs 50. Well, you know, yeah. not, not factoring in the, you know, all the stuff that came before. <laughs> but, you know, that costs like $50 million. And again, it, they, they have such a palpable on-screen presence in the way they look. And then all these like $200 million, you know, CGI-laden blockbusters we have now, they just look kind of cheap. Yes, yeah, they they feel digital, they feel weightless, and they feel cheap to me. Yeah. It's because they invest too much in the uh, post production. Yeah, and and they don't do like you know all those films you just mentioned mostly are uh, in camera jobs with giant sets, or they shot in the real world, or you know they're not they're not green screen dominated films. Yeah, like the um in Terminator Dark Fate, the big centerpiece set piece where they're in the plane in the cargo hold of the plane yeah. <laughs> you can t- you can tell on the yeah. screenplay when cameron was writing that he's like oh this will look amazing blah 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 and it's like that does not translate well when it's all just done on a green screen no like if cameron had done it he probably would have like flown them up in an actual plane <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly it would have been in the vomit comet exactly. the whole thing would have been filmed about yeah, I was gonna say it's not it's not a good place when really you've got Tom Cruise starring the mummy outdoing an action sequence. I mean that also looks really bad, the whole plane sequence in that film, but they actually at least went up there and dropped a plane. Mm. <laughs> and then the the rest of the CGI budget went to uh touching up his sagging chest for his shirt. <laughs> I imagine it was at that point they thought, should we be doing this actually? Should we have even made this film? If we have to uh, touch up the the main actor's sagging chest. Well, back to Scientology, I guess going like OT clear doesn't doesn't give you quite the (laughs) reality-defying powers that they say it does. (laughs) To be honest, I do think that he looks strange in that film when he's naked anyway. He still looks, even though they've touched up his chest... He he kind of looks like his skin's a lot looser and everything's like hanging a little bit wrongly. Like almost there's too many potatoes in a sack. Yeah, he's <laughs> going to be getting surgery soon and it'll be probably very bad. It'll be like Roger Moore at the end of the Bond series oh. when all of a sudden his, his eyes are pinned back. <laughs> oh man. Or it'll be like Sylvester Stallone. I don't know. I don't know oh. what that face is supposed to be anymore. Yeah, he's. Um, I watched the the new Rambo recently, and I think he's mostly puppetry now. He's <laughs> <laughs> the whisper in darkness. Yeah. Okay, so actually, it's a good point for us to... We've mentioned the budget. It's a good point for us to actually uh, go over the stats and facts for X-Files Fight the Future. So at this point in the show, we normally just go over what happened when the film came out, such as the, the budget of the film and the box office for the film, the films that it opened up against and where it, where it opened, and then we go through some critic stuff. So just to begin with the box office, the budget was $66 million, and in its first weekend, it opened to $30 million. That's the US box office. And uh, just to give you an idea of films that it opened up against, in number one, we had The X-Files, which I would expect to be number one. Number two was Disney's Mulan. Number three was The Truman Show. Number four was Six Days, Seven Nights. And number five, we have A Perfect Murder. And number six was Can't Hardly Wait. Number seven was Hope Floats. Number eight was Godzilla, which um, th- there's almost like a connection between Roland Emmerich uh, Independence Day with um, <laughs> with The X-Files as well. That, it, that We do get a shot of Mulder pissing up against a poster of Independence Day. <laughs> and at number nine, there's Deep Impact. And number 10 is The Horse Whisperer. 
So uh, there's there's a few a few notable names in that list, like the Truman Show, and um, obviously as mentioned, Godzilla, one of the the biggest flops of the '90s. I revisited that last year. I remember liking it a lot as a young child. Maybe it, no, it wasn't last year. It was the year before. Whenever the 4K version of it came out, I was like, "Oh, this will yeah. be an interesting time to revisit this film and see how it stacks up against other things from the era." It can't be as bad as people say it is, surely. Oh. <laughs> what, what? Honestly, I, 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 you're going to feel like I'm just copying you, but I had the exact same experience with it, but much earlier. I went to the cinema to go see. It. I actually saw it at the cinema three times in a week. Wow. Because um, I, I, I loved Godzilla when it came out, but I hadn't really seen the the original Godzilla, so, I mean, of the original one and the series that followed. And then I revisited it years and years later. And I have felt disappointment like it, but it was like watching a different film completely. Like, suddenly, everything fell through for me. And I don't know what it is, because it must have been the same film that I've seen. I don't know if I just must have walked into a different theatre every time, because... <laughs> Yeah, it completely changed for me, that film. That's that's one we're definitely going to do on the show at some point. Yeah, yeah. It might be good to do a comparison piece as well between that and the um, the redo. The, the, um, Gareth, the Gareth Edwards, Edwards one. one. Yeah, that's it. And Because uh, the thing is, it's like I'm debating in my mind which one's the more entertaining because you've got that one which is ridiculously bland and then you've got the Roland Emmerich one which is awful but is kind of almost like magic because it none of the components make any sense <laughs> yeah so it's like it's kind of almost slightly it's like magic bad movie big blockbuster thing and it's like it's kind of bad but quite fun to watch whereas the other godzilla is kind of just really boring mo- mostly apart from oh, the monster I, action i think they're both just really boring <laughs> yeah it'd be interesting because I, I haven't seen that other godzilla since uh the cinema, so uh, it'd be interesting to yeah. compare those two again. Oh, the four, the four K definitely does not do the visual effects any favors. I mean, even when I saw it, I saw it on HD, but there were a few shots where I remember there's a particular shot of Godzilla's eye opening in a um, in a sewer, and I remember like like almost jumping back in my seat. It was so bad. Um, but yes, anyway, that's Godzilla. <laughs> um, and going back to the X-Files and the critical reception for the film, um, Rotten Tomatoes has a score of 66% and a 6.2 out of 10 average rating, which I think is drastically too low for this film. And the consensus is that results may vary for newcomers, but fans of the series will enjoy its big screen transition. And for our critic review, I've gone to Neil Jeffries at Empire, and he says... The X-Files can stand proud as a genuine movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> wow, that's high praise indeed. Uh, sorry. <laughs> a beginning, a middle, and an end, two charismatic leads, and a franchise ahead of it. An impressive cinematic makeover that belies its TV roots. X-File fans add one star to the following and trust no one who tells you any different. And he gave it three out of five, but I guess if you're an X-Files fan, it's a four out of five. That would be my rating. Yeah, I letterboxed it recently and I gave it four out of five. I think that's a uh, very solid rating for this film. I, I, I really like it. And the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is 72% with a 3.7 out of five average rating. And the IMDb score is 7.1 out of 10. So, yeah, it seems the critic consensus, with it being about 66%, is a bit lower than how it's been judged over the years and people gone back to it. I think especially considering how the series has gone off the rails as well. Not that people didn't look at it more fondly at the time anyway, but I think 
looking at quite where the series went, people look at this as being like a high point now. I still go back to that thing. I do think it's a film that's been slightly compromised by the fact that it was meant to open up into a series of films and it's had to go back into a TV format straight after. So I do feel like there is something in there, which I think if you are watching it as a standalone movie, there's something about it that's not quite satisfying because it has to dovetail back into that tv format and yeah you do get that scene at the end where the characters have remained the same and it's like oh yeah it, it and, and we were talking the other week i think about films that if it's not even a great film but the the ending's great people will be a bit more favorable to it but if the the last five minutes are a little bit underwhelming then you may be a little bit more yeah. critical of it because i feel like there is something in there it, it, it builds towards something and then it has to really kind of double back on itself to try and not change too much because it's got to go back to the series. Yeah, it starts walking on eggshells in its final moments. Yeah, this is the only instance I can think of of a a cinematic movie based on something where it's had to go where it's where it's canon and it's had to go back into a regular series because usually they they round these things off and then they're kind of yeah. movies or or that's it or something. Um, whereas this has to go back into you know many more seasons. And it has been definitely compromised by that because I don't think it was something they were intending at all. Probably even when they were starting, like when they were shooting it, because obviously it was filmed way before season five. And I still think all the stuff with uh, the studio wanting another season happened at that point. And they were left with this film, which had to be in a way just another episode, but on the big screen. And if you read some of the reviews, some people do say that it, it didn't quite yeah. translate to the big screen. It did feel like an extended two-hour episode. And and um, that's always something that TV shows going on the big screen they always have to contend with, that is it a bona fide film or is it just a, a double-part episode? And, you know, yeah. the, the, I think some of the Star Trek movies, especially some of the next-generation ones, have uh, suffered from that. Yeah, the next generation ones, definitely. Yeah, it's and it's a real fine line to to tread. And I think it almost works here. There's still a lot I, I really like about it, but I think it's just in that having to backtrack right at the end, I think, that it kind of suffers. Because you, you just get the feeling where, like, no one really went through much change. And it's a kind of a shame, really. Cause you, and, it, and it's annoying that when you learn how the series progressed, because it's like... It, it seemed like it was going to go into some really like grand stuff, and it would be really cool. And it and it kind of uh, it doesn't seem like anything happened that way. And it it seems like it just got more and more convoluted as time went on. Yeah, they probably planned another two films, you know, to finish off a whole story, and they've had to like just take bits and pieces from that and stick it in the other seasons, and and then invent more stuff because. Like even to the fact that they had to like um, you know invent two new leads to replace the uh, the old ones <laughs> in the later series. It, yeah, it, it just feels like commerce got in the way. I think. And then there's the revival series, and everything gets retconned into nothingness, and that's <laughs> all Chris Carter himself. Yeah. Do you feel though with the revival series? Do you feel that you can easily just disconnect it from the rest of it? Because I yeah. I, 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 I do. I in my mind it exists on its own separate plane. Yeah, to it, the rest it just of the X-Files. does not fit at all. And it's so terribly done in terms of how it tries to re-engage with the original storyline. It just it's just a disastrous attempt 
that you can just easily separate. It's not something like where, you know, back when Prometheus was released, there was great anguish because it fit just well enough that now you had to deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just makes no sense. It does not align yeah. at all. Like, the aliens are good now? What? Huh? Yeah, they, they undo it also very, very quickly. I, oh, yeah, I struggled with it. It's weird as well because I always considered myself to be a mythology type fan. I love some of the Monster of the Week episodes, but I love the mythology stuff, and that's what I followed. I think that's also why you can tell I struggled with the series past the mythology culmination in like mid-season six, and by season eight I was falling out of love with the show. And yeah, when it comes to the revival, though, the, the mythology episodes are the worst. Yeah, they're so terrible. Like, n- not just the worst in terms of, oh, they're bad. Like you mentioned, they're terrible. But also, they are the worst, I think, that the series has to offer. Yeah, you haven't seen season nine, apparently. but um, No, I haven't. I have not seen anything of season nine. You know, season nine is infamous as a low point. The worst season nine episode is better <laughs> than the <those> survival. <laughs> Oh, well, that, that says everything. You can see that when you look at the series overview on, on Wikipedia. That when you, when you, you know when you get the little graph of the uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores of episode to episode? So when you see uh, season 10 and 11, whenever it gets to uh, an episode titled My Struggle, it goes down to like 30% or something. Yeah. And it goes straight back <laughs> up again for another like standalone episode. So yeah, it's strange how... Um, even not even seeing the show, that like, yeah, those uh, mythology episodes are derided yeah like real properly derided their decision to make it a little six episode season that also replicates the original structure of having mythology episodes and then standards was disastrous an obviously yeah. poor choice that should never be made if you're going to do the x-files now and you only have six episodes you have to make six myth arc episodes you have to be able to properly build that story yeah you don't cram an entire season's worth of stuff into 60 minutes. It's just terrible and untenable. It is. And I guess the big question to ask, though, is would we recommend X-Files fight the future? I will say most certainly I would. I still think it's a... I still, I still think it's a high point for the series, to be honest, oh, for, yeah. for me personally. Un- unreservedly I, I, recommend. Even setting aside, you know, its connections. I think it's very well made on all technical fronts. It's really, yeah. really well acted. Um, Mark Snow's score is great. It's his first like. Oh, that's huge what I wanted to mention, score. Mark Snow. It's so weird that he was contracted to write the score for the his first big Hollywood score in a long time since then, is for that New Mutants movie or whatever. <laughs> that <came laughs> yes, out. it's like he he deserves better. He totally deserves better. But I watched that film very recently. And the score's, like, really nice. Yeah. I really quite like the the music to the film. I I left that film thinking, what a pile of shit. I can't wait to listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, it's a a Mark Snow score. They just let him do his thing. And the score for the second X-Files movie is also excellent. Um, Yeah. But the the score for this one, I think, despite um, some obvious points where you can sort of hear the temp track bleeding through like you can tell us was temp scored with aliens and places and um yes but it's great it's really big and it's got strong themes and it's really well orchestrated it's really propulsive in that way that you just can't write music anymore for movies like now it's all just flat drab bland wallpaper yeah dressing yeah just so much about this film even setting aside its roots is indicative of a filmmaking 
that you're just not allowed to really do anymore. Yeah. Uh, it says a lot about the TV hierarchy, like in terms of the division between TV and film, it would be quite unusual at that time to have somebody who composed the music for the TV show to be allowed to actually write the music for the film because something like that usually would be, oh, we'll give that to like Jerry Goldsmith or somebody like that. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, that kind of move would be... Would be uh, thinking about it now, it's like, yeah, that that was really unusual. Whereas, obviously, these days, because that line's blurred between TV and film, like you get, there's there's no real distinction, and people cross over from one to another. But yeah, that would have been quite a big deal, really, for for him to have actually been able to be allowed to do the the music for this film, even though he, you know, invented all the you know the the theme tune, which is iconic and and everything. It's just a completely different world. Yeah, no, that. it's 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 the same thing as sort of like Angelo Badalamenti with Twin Peaks. Like Twin yeah. Peaks yeah. and that music is inseparable. Um, yeah, yeah. You, the X Files without Mark Snow would not be the same thing. Mm. Um, so no. much, even so much of the show when you go back and watch it, they're like in the weaker episodes they like completely rely on his score. Yeah, like a good reason like a lot of the X Files remains like gripping and frightening is because of the music he wrote for it. This TV show has a great score. It does. And I, I like the TV show as well in terms of the, the score that he presents. I know that it's it's like it's all electronic based. But with this as well, the, I feel like he takes that step up from the TV show to that, like, as you say, that propulsive full orchestra feeling. I mean, I'm not technical when it comes to, to music, but I can feel the difference. Like suddenly he has that backing. And again, I feel like this for him... His music in the series is, as you say, iconic. It, it, it became, it took on a life of its own as well outside of the series, as mentioned. It became a, a very popular dance track over here. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like this though is like it's him taking the step into Hollywood, and it's it's unfortunate that he never really got to take more of that world, like with that full backing. I, I'm I'm kind of sorry that we don't really get to see more of Mark Snow outside of the X-Files. Yeah, well, that was uh, that was also a result of um, the show going back to TV, is that he, not only was he signed on to the X-Files to write music for every episode, he was signed on to Millennium, Chris Carter's yeah, other show. Yeah. So he was just working nonstop on the X-Files. And then when that was over... You know, he was stuck in the TV ghetto, basically. So yeah. he's, he's still very well respected. He's been nominated for like a, a billion Emmys and things. Rightfully so, definitely. Um, and I guess one more thing that I do want to add as well. Uh, we've all, like I say, we definitely recommend watching The X-Files. But I also want to mention as well, we spoke about it at length on the episode today. Um, this is going to be a, like a joint episode. I'm most certainly going to fully recommend as well The Gulf of Silence. I know that you can um, see it on Amazon at the moment. Is it available on like iTunes and most on-demand services? Eventually. Right now it's just on Amazon Prime in the US and UK. And then for worldwide audiences, it's available on Vimeo On Demand. All right. I, and I certainly recommend finding that wherever you are. Like I say, I watched it on the, um, on the screener link that you did send me and I was really taken aback by it um but actually when you uploaded it to amazon prime it came up as the next recommended film that i watch after i'd seen the arrival <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> yeah so i just wanted to mention that that it said if you liked the arrival please watch the gulf of silence yeah well you don't uh there aren't any weird backward bending leg <laughs> aliens in my movie unfortunately <laughs> 
God. You sent me a clip for that the other day and it made me laugh. <laughs> it's it's fantastic, yes. Yeah. So I sent him that clip from the end when Charlie Sheen is having his like heart to heart with the um with the neighborhood kid and then suddenly his legs bend backwards and he runs off into the sunset. <laughs> it just makes me laugh every single time. It's just the Charlie Sheenness of it as well. Oh, yeah, that too. But uh, that's that's one of those um, sci-fi movies that nobody really loved except Roger Ebert. He really went to bat for that. <laughs> yeah. We, we've covered some films that are real duds on this show, and I'd say nine times out of ten there's normally a four out of four Roger Ebert review. Yeah. <laughs> Does, that mean, Does that mean you've done knowing? Oh, <laughs> it's, no. It's on, yeah. it's on the list, though. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a four out of four. I, I, love, I love Ebert. The man had sometimes interesting taste in science fiction he liked he yeah. liked fight the future he gave fight the future three out of four three out of four yep that's it yeah I, but he hated horror hated john carpenter yeah yeah well he liked the original halloween oh that's true yeah no, nothing else though it was a thing it was a thing about violence wasn't it it was it was all to do with gore for some reason ebert and Cisco they they drew the line when it came to to depictions of gore in movies yeah, I lo- I like watching the old Siskel and Ebert reviews of like Friday the Thirteenth sequels, and you just see Roger Ebert just seething, getting really worked oh, yeah, up, angry, yeah. you know, disgusting trash. That <laughs> <laughs> he hated the Hitcher, absolutely hated the Hitcher, which oh, I think really? is one. I, I think is like the best slasher movie ever made. I love the Hitcher. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. I think I think that's. The only sort of sort of slasher movie, I mean, you know, one of the few horror movies in general, I think, where I think it's really frightening. I think Rutger yeah. Hauer in that film is frightening. Yes, he he is. It's, the, it's the, again, I know I've used this phrase before, but it's the kind of like existential dread that comes with that film, and he's just this like he's a threat to your entire being, yeah. and your place in the universe. I, I'm gutted that we still haven't seen like a Blu-ray release of that film. Um, oh, there there is have... one from Germany. I have it. Um, it's oh, probably going to be yeah. the only one that gets released. Um, I saw it no in 2019. Yeah, when Rucker Howard died, um, the Egyptian here did a screening of it, and um, apparently HBO has lost all the prints. They had to f- <gasps> they had to fly in a print from a private collector in New Jersey. Oh my god! So that that's why there's no Blu-ray releases. The Blu-ray release from Germany comes from a German release print, so it has German right. titles. It looks okay. It, they've had to do a lot of processing. There are points where you can kind of, if you're really eagle-eyed, you can detect that there were some frames missing, and so they just put a still yeah. shot there, so it kind of jerks a bit. But that's probably the best there's going to be. Good job, HBO. I'll have to hunt that down, actually, then, if that's the best that we're getting. Because I've been holding out for, for the longest time thinking, there's a Blu-ray release around the corner. I know it's coming. I can feel it. Nope. Like, Arrow released a book about the Hitcher. Yes. But yeah. they, they haven't released. The, and that's because I'm pretty sure the elements are just not there anymore. There was an like the incredible amount of disappointment when they were like teasing pictures of the Hitcher as part of their promotional campaign, I remember everybody was just like, it's happening. We're finally, you know, like, because people people in the same way that they were about the Dawn of the Dead Blu-ray because of the rights issue with that film in terms mm. of the rights being held up and the obscene amount of money that was required in order to release them. It was, it was similar to that. It was similar to, the, like, the fervor around it. And then it was a book that they released. <laughs> I just remember this heavy weight of disappointment we all felt. 
But yeah, still still waiting. I'm sure they will at some point. Get something together. Well, in the meantime, the German release is it's pretty serviceable. <laughs> I'll, I'll hunt it down, definitely. Okay, so that's all we have time for on this episode of Popcorn Digest. I do very much thank you for listening, and I thank you for joining us as well today, MK Rhodes. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. And for our next episode, we'll be asking, do you bleed? Well, you will, as we're going to be reviewing Batman vs Superman, Dawn of Justice. But until then... I've been Gareth. And I've been Andy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>